Today we're going to talk about ways you can get great physics in your video games. Hey, how's it going, guys? I hope you're well. Um, welcome to the 11th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I'm your host, Zachavelli. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore or on Instagram at the same handle. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to our Discord. Our Discord's been really awesome the last couple of weeks. Um, starting to get a handful of people in there and have good discussions on... Uh, a craft that we all love, which is game development. So today's episode is about physics. Also, there's a little bonus segment in there because I participated in a game jam, um, which is where you make an entire video game in 48 hours. So uh, yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But first, we got to talk about our uh, newly branded game dev challenge. So if you'll remember, if you've listened to past episodes, this is where the game idea jam used to go but i switched it over to the game dev challenge so that it wasn't just a game design topic every week Um, i switched it up so that we could try our hand at other things like art and maybe in the future sound and things like that and i'm glad we did this because this now gives um people who maybe come with a different skill set it gives them a moment to shine Although I think that even if, let's say, it's an art week um, and you're a programmer, I still think you should participate in the art challenges um, just so that you can, like we talked about last week, kind of develop your skills and become that Swiss army knife of a developer. So with that, let's talk about uh, last week's submissions. Last week, the sort of prompt or theme was um, to design a 2D character sprite. And I gotta say, it was it worked out really well. I'm really happy we did it. Um, we have some really talented artists in the Discord. Um, that's where we kind of host all these things. So if you want to go see the submissions, you'll have to join the Discord. Um, I realize that is the flaw of switching <laughs> from something I can talk about on the show. I can't really show you the art on a audio format, but I still think it's um, better than the old system we were doing. So I'm going to talk about the submissions, and there's something about each one of them that I think everyone can um, learn from, and it's going to be a little bit different for each one. But yeah, I think there's a lesson to be learned uh, from other people's work, and hopefully I can convey that here. Um, So the first submission is a character design by Crypt Critter. Again, you'll have to go on the Discord to look at these, but I'll do my best to describe it. So... Crypt Critter uh, submitted, it looks to be his main character, um, and it's a very, like, almost like um, a Tim Burton-style character design, like, uh, what's that movie? Nightmare Before Christmas. It gives me that kind of, like, haunting yet charming vibe, which I think is actually a pretty tough thing to pull off, um, because it's easy to make something haunting, it's, you know, easy to make a character that's straight charming, but to have a sort of scary, well, also charming character is, you know, a, a bit of a level deeper. And it requires, like, 
a very good eye for the subtle changes in a character design that can take it from being a horror character to like a sort of charming adventure character. And so I think Crypt Critter excellently walked this line um, and has a real good eye for those subtleties. So next up we have a character animation by Elliot. And Elliot was like the first person on our Discord. Um, He's been sharing his progress along with his um, platformer game, where, by the way, he built a physics engine by himself, which is going to be very topical for this episode, but that's beside the point. Um, On top of being a good programmer, it turns out Elliot is an incredible animator. The animation for his character, the run animation that he submitted for the Game Dev Challenge, is smooth as butter and it's extremely detailed you can see sort of the ripples in the cloth of the character's clothes um sort of i don't know what the term for it is but they you know what i mean they like change when they're when you're running and that small detail i think really sells this animation and it's an art style that really reminds me of the show the boondocks i don't know if anyone's ever seen that on Adult Swim, but if you go on the Discord and uh, look at Elliot's animation, just pull up the boondocks on uh, like a Google image search and you'll see what I mean. It's a very similar um, art style. And honestly, the animation is such quality in Elliot's sprite that uh, it looks like it's like right out of the show. Lastly, with the most reactions, which is Discord's version of like upvotes, I guess, Um, is a submission by Probably in a Band. He submitted a character called Axel, the Axolotl. Um, If you don't know what an Axolotl is, it's like that pink amphibian with like the frilly neck that people keep in aquariums. They're like super cute animals um, in real life, and Probably in a Band really did a good job of capturing this character with a very simple, um, almost like low-resolution sprite. But I think this is the most impressive because probably in a band was working with such few pixels. I mean, when you're doing a low resolution sprite like this, it's really hard to capture things like um, facial expressions, for instance, because you're working with such big constraints, I guess you could say, um, in terms of like one pixel takes up a lot of screen space when you're doing these low resolution sprites. So you have to really place your pixels like in the perfect spot. And um, yeah, this is a skill that I wish I had because I really, really struggle with low resolution sprites like this and kind of bringing them to life. And I think probably in a band did this really well. I mean, the sprite like exudes a lot of character. He really conveyed across the sort of real-life cute animal in sprite form. And I think that's probably why it got the most upvotes or reactions on Discord. So yeah, those were the um, submissions for last week. I really liked how we switched it up and turned it to like a art week. It's really cool seeing um, how talented other people are. And uh, personally for me, it really like inspires me to practice and get better because I, I, I want to be as good as that. So yeah, just remember that the Game Dev Challenge is sort of a personal challenge, really. Um, So I would really uh, encourage people, even if you're not an artist, to participate in the art ones. 
And if you're not a game designer, participate in the game design ones and so on and so forth. Um, Because really it's about getting better yourself. You're not really comparing your stuff to other people's. And the only reason you are is to see where you have to improve. But I know I kind of frame it as a competition. That's just because I like competitions. But really the competition is with yourself. That's the whole point of it is to get you to try something new or to improve a skill that maybe you're not so great at or the or for the people who maybe it's their time to shine like this was an art challenge so it's an artist's time to shine so yeah just remember uh don't get discouraged by like if other people's art is way better and you're only drawing stick figures remember that the challenge really is with yourself so maybe this time you draw stick figures maybe the next 10 times you draw stick figures but on that 11th time you're gonna make a sprite that's better than a stick figure and then you know, you can see your growth, and that's what it's about. So yeah, for this um, next game dev challenge, I think we're going to dial it back to a game design uh, week because I like the variety that that can offer, and plus I can talk about the submissions on the show, which offers a little more content, whereas this week the art stuff is really cool, and it's a good thing to change it up, but also there's no way to really convey it in an audio format, Um, and it's kind of locked between behind joining our discord which i hope everyone goes and joins the discord but i don't want to lock content behind it so yeah for next week we're gonna um, talk about game design and the prompt is gonna be design a physics-based game mechanic for a video game um, but the submissions will be judged on the use of supporting math and i know you're thinking well i'm not a physicist so (laughs) you can count me out of this one but by the end of this episode, you will know enough about physics um, as they pertain to video games to at least talk about a physics-based mechanic and know what's going on. So with that, let's uh, get into the body of the episode. So this week's episode is on uh, physics and video games. And physics is one of those tough things because everyone is a master at recognizing Um, bad physics. And by that I mean um, they might not like know the math to know why the physics aren't working, but you just like subconsciously know right away. It's kind of like when you're shooting a basketball. It's not like you're, you know, calculating the trajectory of the ball and all that. You just kind of naturally know how far to shoot it. Unless you're Shaq (laughs) at the free throw line, but You guys know what I mean. Like when you throw something or pretty much any physics related thing that happens in your life, your brain just kind of like naturally recognizes what's supposed to happen. And like the hand-eye coordination is a different thing, but humans are actually really, really good at like judging physics. Maybe not from a math standpoint, but from just like a natural knowing how it works. So this is um, a good thing in... It's like a double-edged sword, I guess, because everyone has this sort of innate recognition of physics. So if your game is like off and it doesn't seem right, their subconscious is going to know right away. But that also means you already know how to get good physics or you know what good physics looks like. So you already have like one half of the puzzle. Um, and the use of game engines, uh, especially ones that come with physics engines built in, you can get some pretty good physics, like really quality physics, 
with just a, a few pointers, and we're going to talk about a lot of those things in this episode. I know I just said that um, you don't have to know the math, but I will say that knowing the math really, really helps. And I know it can be daunting. I mean, my day job, I'm an engineer, and I still get tripped up on physics stuff all the time. So for like a person who maybe is not so great at math, um, I can see how it could be really daunting to learn all these physics formulas. But just knowing, like, just having, like, a fifth-grade knowledge of the basics of the physics um, interactions that kind of pertain to your gameplay, I think can really, really help. So that's my first tip, is look up the physics formulas that are relevant to what's going on on your game on the screen and just have like a really basic knowledge of how it how it's all working um, even if it's like a fifth grade level it's still really going to help you um, dial it in and make sure that it is passing like everyone's kind of subconscious check like with most tips um, I have there's always like a fine print or a asterisk next to it um, not everything you make has to be a simulation of real physics and actually, now that I think about it, for most games, uh, it probably won't be. But you have to know how the real physics work before you know how to break it uh, and kind of bend it to the will for your game. Because although your physics don't have to be realistic, like a perfect simulation of real life, they should be believable, if you know what I mean. Like, like as long as the relationship of forces happening on your screen is understandable by the player and like it makes sense in their subconscious then it can work it doesn't have to be a perfect simulation you see this in like action movies with a oh, perfect example uh in cowboy movies right when someone gets shot they go like flying through windows and <laughs> all sorts of craziness happens with that but that doesn't happen in real life that's not how physics work in real life but it's believable right so yeah you just got to kind of keep that principle in mind when you're dealing with physics. Just make sure that it's believable and it's going to pass that subconscious check that everyone has through the lifetime experience of just having physics interactions happen with them every day. So now that we have sort of a baseline, you know, our baseline is just to have believable physics. Let's talk about the difference between like passable, believable physics and really good phys physics that actually feel good in the game. And there's a term that used to get tossed around a lot, especially in games journalism. Back when I was like in middle school and high school when I'd read all these reviews and watch them on YouTube. And I don't see it much anymore, but the term is floaty. I don't know if anyone else has ever heard of that, but I remember back in the day everyone would say like if the movement felt floaty or the combat felt floaty. And maybe we don't hear that term anymore because that's like a testament to how good video games have gotten in the last 10 years or so but floaty to me refers to like a sword that doesn't hit as hard as you'd expect or vehicles that like slide around on the road instead of feeling like they're like gripped to the road you know like in real life and the reason for physics feeling floaty in a game is that strong weighty forces although they feel a lot better uh, like high speeds high weights um, they also cause physic gl physics glitches due to just increased speed, and I'll explain why that is here in a second. It basically has to do with how physics are calculated by engines. Um, kind of 
It's not how it happens in real life. So on the computer, um, the computer calculates the velocity of an object, which the velocity is the speed and direction. So it calculates that, it moves the object, and then it sees if that object is overlapping anything. So let's just say we have a ball in, a, in the ground. So the ball is falling straight down, the computer calculates where it'll be at the next step, and then if the ball is overlapping the ground, it says, oh, it hit the ground and, you know, bounces it back up or applies the whatever motion it has to to give it a new velocity. And I, I said step, um, it happens every frame or every step. There's a difference between steps and frames, and we'll talk to th about that later on. But let's just pretend like the average video game or the goal for the video game is 60 frames per second and you have one physics step every frame. So 60 times a second the computer is calculating the velocity of an object, um, the ball falling straight down, and every or every one sixtieth of a second it moves that ball where it would be over that amount of time. But the thing about this is the ball is not moving along that path. It's sort of blinking in and out of existence, right? It's at one spot. The computer calculates where its next spot will be according to its speed and direction. But the ball doesn't actually move between those two spots. It just blinks out of, it, out of existence at the one spot and then back into existence at the next spot. And obviously in real life, you know, the ball just follows the path. But that's not how computers do it. At least the physics engines that I work with do it. I think there are some that calculate the continuous path, but I think they're extremely CPU heavy. Um, and I, I'm not sure if they get used in video games a lot. At least not indie video games. So with this in mind, the object blinking in and out of existence, we can see that problems might start to develop because of this. There's a term called tunneling which is technically, if an object is moving fast enough, it could blink right through another object. Let's say you have a ball and a wall, and the wall is only... Let's say the ball is... or the wall is one foot thick. If your ball is moving two feet per second, then there's a chance that, let's say we were only updating once per second, that the ball would just go right through the wall, right? Because it's going to blink out of existence on one side of the wall, computer is going to calculate, okay, every second is going two feet left. So then it moves it two feet left, blinks back in existence, and it just went right through the wall. So that's an extremely um, simple example, but most physics engine glitches are a derivative of problems like tunneling. So now that we know kind of how the physics systems update and work, um, with that knowledge, let's go back to weighty versus floaty. And those are just generic terms that I'm going to use, but floaty, remember, is the sword that doesn't hit the enemy as hard as you'd think. Uh, not from like a number standpoint, but the enemy doesn't really react to it like you would think they would. Or a car sliding around, or even the character moves kind of like they're sliding around on ice. So, weightier physics, um, I wish I had a better word for that, but it's kind of hard to describe that feeling, but... You know what I mean. A faster, weightier physics is like a super quick sword or a, maybe like a war hammer that crushes stuff or when you hit it, it launches things far away. They just feel better, right? It feels really good to have that kind of destructive power. Um, but 
like I said, they come with glitches because of the way that the engines update themselves and problems like tunneling. So for this reason, most physics engines, their presets are defaulted to be floaty so that you don't get glitches on the first time you run your simulation. So Unity, for instance, everything, uh, every object that you add a rigid body to weighs one kilogram. That's the default. And so you could have a giant building and you could have a piece of paper and it weighs the same amount, has the same mass. And obviously that's not right, but Unity just ha has these sort of presets that make sure that you're not going to have any glitches when you start. So I guess another tip is to make sure that you're tweaking the physics. Don't just take the physics engine right out of the box. Um, it might be a good starting point, but you're definitely going to want to tune things up a bit because the defaults of the f most physics engines are just to avoid glitches, but not necessarily to give your game the best feel. So as you can see, this is kind of about balance. We want to balance having good weight and speed, but also we want to avoid glitches. And so a good way to start with this, to you know, start adding weight and speed, is to experiment with stronger gravity. This is especially so if your game has jumping. Um, I went into depth uh, about this kind of on the jumping episode, so go listen to that one if you haven't yet, but you should know that for whatever reason in video games, if you fall out of the air like you do in real life, like if you take the exact physics from real life, which is you accelerate due to gravity at 9.81 meters per second squared, it just it feels kind of floaty in games. Uh, the classic example is in Mario. Uh, Mario, when you're falling down, the gravity actually gets turned way up. That way you get your feet back on the ground and you can uh, move around again. And it also helps with like aiming your jumps. Like I think it's if you're above an enemy, um, having that increased gravity helps you like come down on the enemy where you mean to and not just kind of like float around like a feather. So this is a good example of how knowing the basic formula of how gravity works, for instance, um, will help you so that you know exactly how to tweak your game. So if you know that real-life gravity is 9.81 meters per second squared, um, and it's a, an acceleration, it's not a constant speed down, you're actually getting faster as you go down. We now know that we can maybe turn it up, turn it up to double, turn it up to triple, see how it feels. Maybe um, you only want to accelerate on the way down, but on the way up, you know, you have like normal gravity. These are the kind of things you want to tweak and play with so that you can increase the weightiness of your physics and not just go with the defaults that come with the game engine. Sooner or later, though, you're going to be turning up these weights, you're going to be turning up the speeds, and you're going to run into glitches, right? You're just going to push the physics engine too far. And personally, I think you should be, like, right teetering on that line between pushing it too far because, like we said, having real weight to your physics system just adds a really good sort of feedback to the player. So you're going to be increasing this, um, and you're going to run into glitches like tunneling, like how we talked about before. So this is where, I remember I said we'd vi revisit this, this is where you get into the differences between a step and a frame. And when I say step, I mean a physics step. So a frame is, I think we've talked about this before, but let's revisit it. 
frame is just like a still image, right? At 60 frames per second, you're drawing 60 still images a second, and then you're playing them in a second, and that's kind of showing the motion of what's happening on the screen, right? It's like the old-timey movies where... Uh, do digital films still work like this? I don't, I don't know much about digital film, but old-timey movies, right, were just a bunch of pictures back-to-back-to-back, um, and then they would just really quickly go through them, and it'd look like there's motion on the screen. That's basically what 60 frames per second is. It's 60 still images a second that the computer draws, and that's why uh, games feel really laggy when there's less frames per second because, you know, there's more time in between the frames. So a physics step is kind of like that, um, but it's just the sort of amount of times the physics engine is updated per second. So, you know, you could have 60 frames per second and 60 physics steps per second. But remember, like we said, in the same way that having fewer frames can result in like a laggy motion, having fewer steps can result in more of these like tunneling glitches, right? Because the step is the time that it is blinking in and out of existence. So if there's more time in between the steps, then your object is out of existence for longer, if that makes sense. So one way that we can kind of improve things like tunneling is if we increase the steps. So if you doubled it to 120 steps per second, now that object is out of existence for half the time. So basically it's just blinking more um, and blinking faster, which decreases the amount of time it could possibly blink right through an object. So I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of a weird thing to picture in your mind. But yeah, so if you're having problems with tunneling or kind of other glitches of a similar nature, um, try upping the amount of physics steps you have. Usually in most physics engines it's an easy you know, number that you type into some field somewhere. But keep in mind that doing this has a higher CPU cost. And remember last week we talked about performance and how you like always have a CPU budget. So don't just dial that up to like a million steps a second because that is going to be extremely costly for the computer to try and figure that out. So let's say you turned it up to 120 steps per second but now the CPU cost of that is like gotten kind of high. So maybe you dial it in to 80 steps per second or you know something just a little bit higher. Um, another way that you can kind of up the performance um, so that you can get more steps in is by ab abstracting your colliders. So we haven't talked about colliders yet, but Basically, colliders are just the boundary on your model or sprite that kind of marks its shell. It's like the hard part on the outside that's going to collide with other things. And so your initial idea might be to just trace your sprite or model or whatever, and then you have your collider. But if you're smart with your colliders, you can get higher performance because you're not checking as many edges, right? Because if you have more edges, then the computer has to check if more things hit each other. So a good example of this is like if you have a ninja star, right? You could just trace the shape of it and you'd have a bunch of edges um, then kind of the circular middle part. Or you could just connect all the points in like a circle. From a gameplay standpoint, you have the same exact thing. 
because does it really matter? Like, are you really going to have to know what happens in between the blades or is the point that just the ninja star hit something? And so if you abstract the shape as just a circle, it basically does the same thing and you're saving your computer from having to calculate more boundary collisions. So as you can see, like getting the physics right is mostly about balance. And uh, this last thing that you want to check is pretty much exactly about balance. Um, let's talk about mass ratios. So for these examples, um, just think of mass as like how heavy something is, but know that in real life there's a difference between mass and weight. And if you use them interchangeably to someone who knows a lot about physics, they're going to, I don't know, they're going to like gatekeep you about <laughs> the difference. So uh, for these examples, just think of them as interchangeable, but know that they're not usually. So a proper mass ratio is like, um, remember how I said that subconsciously everybody will know if something is right or wrong from a physics standpoint. Um Imagine if you had like a little box and a big box and they're on a collision course for each other. Um, what you would expect to happen is that the little box comes, crashes into the big box and is bounced off at a much faster speed than the big box. If it does bounce off, it'll bounce off slowly. And if it, it wouldn't be the other way around, right? And you like subconsciously know this. If a little box came in and if both boxes were going at the same speed, the little box came in and then the big box bounced off it like a bullet, then that would just look wrong. And so subconsciously we know this, but let's look at the formula. So if we think about force, uh, force is mass times acceleration. So that kind of makes sense, right? Mass, uh, for this example, is how heavy something is. So their acceleration is the same. Let's just say they're going at the same uh, rate. So yeah, you would expect that the little box kind of bounces off the big box. You know, it's kind of a, a function of mass in this case. So when we talk about the mass ratio, really we're talking about um, objects sort of relationship to each other and uh, the weight that the object represents should like make sense to how it sort of reacts to other objects. Um, and what you don't want to do is have all your objects the same mass because it's the contrast between the two things that helps sell the weight of things. And so their masses don't have to be realistic, but the relationship um, with their size and how other objects react to them should be. So <laughs> that's a really long and complicated way of saying that big things should bounce little things off of it. But I think it shows what I mean by if you know the basics of the math behind it, you can then get something working that's believable. It doesn't have to be a perfect simulation, but it's believable. And just make sure that your mass ratio is believable and make sure there's enough contrast there so that you can really sell like which things are heavy and which things are light. And if you're going to break this mass ratio rule, make sure you have a good reason for it. Um, either you have some kind of like physics changing power that the character does or maybe the little box is just going really, really fast and that's why the big box flies away from it. 
but make sure that it's well explained to the player because if it's not, their subconscious is going to tell them like, hey, something's not right here. So the last thing I want to talk about is um, the difference between kinematic objects and dynamic objects and how this can uh, cause some glitches within a physics engine. Um, so when we talk about kinematic versus dynamic objects, a kinematic object is just uh, an object where it itself is not simulating any physics on it, but like if a other object was to hit it, it would simulate f physics for that object. So think about like a wall. You could set up your wall to be kinematic um, because you don't really care about the wall moving around. What you care about is things bouncing off of it. A dynamic object is like the ball. You know, you care about the physics affecting that. So kinematic objects are good. Uh, usually it's just like a checkbox. Uh, in most game engines, you just click, you know, a true-false thing, and it sets it up as kinematic. And then you want to do that for things like walls, for instance. Um, if you don't care about the... If you don't have, like, a mechanic where you're knocking down walls or breaking walls, then, one, you're going to save performance on not calculating the physics of it every step. But two, you don't have to worry about it ever like falling down or anything like that. It's just going to stay there. It's going to be solid. Things are going to bounce off of it. It's going to behave like you want a wall to behave. But when you mix kinematic and dynamic objects together, you open up the possibility of unsolvable situations. So a real simple example of this is if you have two walls like moving together, like they're going to squeeze something like the uh, trash compactor in Star Wars. If you have, let's say, just a dynamic ball in between two walls that are squeezing it together, at a certain point, um, the ball is just going to be infinitely bouncing back, before, back and forth between the two walls. And it's going to put the ball in an unsolvable situation because it's going to, you know, on one step it's going to say, okay, we bounced off this wall because we're overlapping. And then on the very next step, it's going to say, well, we bounced off this wall because we're overlapping. And then it's just going to go back and forth and back and forth. And it's just going to, like, jitter or explode out of there or something's going to happen. That's not going to be right. So you got to think about um, when you have kinematic objects, especially ones that move, um, just think about how they're reacting to dynamic objects and make sure that you're not putting your dynamic objects in any situations that would be unsolvable. So, yeah, I know we talked about a lot in this episode, um, well, in the body of this episode at least, and it was a lot of stuff that might be hard to, like, visualize or hard to think about, especially if you're not a math-minded person. Um, and honestly, I learned a lot about this from myself. Uh, one, from doing the jam, the game jam this past weekend, which I'm about to talk about. But two, uh, I found a really good game developers conference talk by Bennett Foddy, who made a game back in the day called Quop, uh, Q-W-O-P, which I don't know if everyone had this experience in high school, but that was like a super popular Flash game that everyone would play on their like internet browser when the teacher wasn't looking. It's basically like um, the premise is you control a sprinter, but you can only control his thigh and, and calf muscles with Q-W-O and P. And so, like, you got to squeeze and contract him in the right manner so that he runs down the track. But it almost never works. And it's not that it never works in, like, a, the game's broken way. It never works because it's really hard to control someone like that. 
Um, so it just kind of is like a fun, funny sort of goofy physics games. But he really, really knows what he's talking about. And in this GDC talk, he definitely opened my mind to a lot of the uh, ways to solve physics glitches within Unity. And I'm sure that the principles extend to other game engines. So I'll link that video in the show notes and I'll post it in the Discord. But I really encourage you, especially if you're making a physics-based game, to go check it out. Because it's got a lot of good examples, um, a lot of pictures, videos, and stuff that kind of helps explain this uh, a little bit more mathematical topic. So yeah, let's uh, go over to the next segment of the episode, which is... I kind of, on short notice, participated in a game jam. So I had heard about a game jam last week. Uh, I don't know how I'd never heard of it before, but it's by the YouTube channel Game Makers Toolkit, which is a really good YouTube channel for game developers. And anyways, they put on a game jam um, last weekend, and uh, I participated in it. So I thought I'd talk about what went well and what didn't go well and maybe see what we can learn from it. So first off, I want to say that my goal was to just finish the game because... Truth be told, I've only ever participated in one other game jam from this, and I didn't finish in the allotted time. Which, by the way, is not unusual. Um, it's something like a third of the people who start it actually finish it within 48 hours. It kind of depends on the jam, because the theme is a little bit different for each one. But generally, a rule of thumb, I think, is that a third of the people who start are going to actually finish and get their game in within the amount of time that you have which is typically 48 hours. So yeah, my goal was just to finish, and I'm happy to say that I did finish. Um, I finished with about 30 minutes left to go in the jam. And yeah, so I passed my first goal, but let's talk about it a little bit deeper in terms of like game design and how everything went from the actual development uh, standpoint. So the theme for uh, this year's Game Makers Toolkit 2020 jam uh, was Out of Control. And so when the theme got announced, I started like planning ideas in my head, which by the way, the theme gets announced right when the game jam starts. So this is included within your 48 hours. So not only do you have to make the game, but you also have to plan the game and design the game. But yeah, so when I read this out of control uh, prompt, the first thing that came into my head, I don't, I don't know why, but it was the game uh, Plinko from <laughs> The Price is Right, which... Uh, Plinko is like a game where you drop, it's almost like a hockey puck. Uh, I can't remember how like the actual money aspect of it works, but basically you drop a hockey puck and do like a board with a bunch of posts, uh, from the top down and it bounces around and it lands on a price at the bottom. And, uh, the sort of trajectory of the hockey puck is kind of out of control, which is why I thought of it when the theme was announced. So I wanted to make something like that, like you, you kind of can select where the puck is going to be dropped um, and you're trying to hit a target. But what happens in between where you drop it and the bottom is like up to the gods. And uh, I thought that this would be a little bit more fun with explosions because <laughs> everything is a little bit more fun with explosions. So that's when I started um, sort of toying with the idea of rolling bombs down a hill. And so eventually I made this game. The game's called Bomber's Pass. Uh, and it's a game where you have to hit sort of army truck supply convoys that are going past a road, and you're kind of up on a, a mountain. It's supposed to be like a quaint like valley, 
sort of a mountainous valley and you stop start at the top of the mountain and you roll the bombs down the hill to hit the truck convoys going by and i knew from the beginning that i wanted to make a physics based um game cuz i was going to do this episode so playing with the physics was like a huge part of this and uh one of the very first things i did when i was designing the game was i followed my golden rule which is remember that we're trying to evoke a feeling and the feeling i wanted to evoke was like the kind of joy you get from watching like chaos unfold so i pictured like this person up on a outpost with watching the bombs roll down the hill and they finally explode something and i don't know it's just like a good feeling to see things <laughs> explode uh, and go flying everywhere. Maybe that makes me a crazy person. Maybe not everyone feels that, but I like seeing that. There's like a raw enjoyment out of that. So I think what went really well about my game is I, I do feel like I captured this feeling. Um, and one of the ways that I did this was I made my models like piece by piece, sort of like a, a Lego set, right? Like the tires can come off the truck, the hood can come off the truck, the cab can come off the truck, the bed comes off, the posts that make up the bed come off and so when these explosions happen the truck just absolutely falls apart and all of its little pieces go flying i think this really helps sell the like chaos effect because if it was just one solid truck model going away it wouldn't be as impactful as seeing like tires go flying by the screen and um all the supplies flies out of the truck so yeah i think that part went really well i really captured um that feeling of chaos but let's talk about what didn't go well. Um, remember that the, it only I only had 48 hours to make this, so I had to skimp out on some things. Um, the UI in particular, uh, on Sunday morning, probably about two or three hours before I had to submit the game, um, I was doing the UI. I had it all set up nice, and I just hit the play button to test out how it looked when you're actually playing the game. And it turns out that in my code, I accidentally made it so that you could get stuck in an infinite loop. Um, and this infinite loop crashed a computer, well, crashed Unity. Um, so I exited out of Unity, and I couldn't save because it crashed. And when I uploaded it, all the UI was gone because I forgot to hit save before I hit play. So yeah, that was super frustrating, like especially three hours before I had to submit it. So I had to redo all of that, and I had to cut audio out of the game entirely just because I didn't have time to do it. Um, so yeah that, yeah, that was kind of a setback. But uh, it wasn't the only thing that went wrong. I also think that uh, I missed out on adding a little bit of charm to the game. I originally wanted to have a billboard kind of across the road from the outpost where you're dropping the bombs. And I wanted the billboard to have like a car insurance commercial because on this same road where the army trucks are, there's actually cars too. And if you hit the cars, it's kind of a penalty. And, and so it's kind of funny because most games, by the end of it, you'll just have car parts laying everywhere because remember, you're not really controlling these bombs. They're just freely rolling down the hill. So you end up hitting cars <laughs> pretty much every time. Um, so I wanted to have like a billboard that was like a, car insurance thing that said like all-time high demand or something like that um just as like a kind of funny in joke that i realized that you pretty much are gonna hit a car <laughs> every time you drop a bomb 
So yeah, I kind of missed an opportunity to add the charm, and that was on my list of things, but I had to cut it out just because I ran out of time. Um, and then one of the biggest things I was disappointed kind of in myself with is that I had pretty shallow gameplay on this one. I mean, other than picking what kind of bombs go into the hopper before you release them, there wasn't, like, real deep gameplay, which... I just got done talking about uh, last week how you should double down on your strengths as a game dev and like know your identity. And for me, I feel like my strength is game design and like designing deep gameplay. And then on this one, of course, I don't listen to my own advice and I kind of skimp on the gameplay so that I can have cool explosion effects. Um, ultimately, I think it worked out. I mean, I set out what I meant to do, but if I could do it better next time, I would definitely focus a little bit more on deeper gameplay and take my own advice and double down on my strengths. But all in all, I, you know, I finished my goal. I had a super fun time. It's, it's crazy how fast the time goes when you're like having fun. Uh, the weekend just flew by, but it was so much fun tweaking the physics and messing with explosions. And most importantly, I learned a lot about my tools. I learned a lot about my workflow and I gained a lot of confidence. I mean, I made an entire game in 48 hours. So my confidence in my skill is like pretty high right now just because I know that I can do it. Now I can definitely do it better for the reasons that I said before, but I know that I can at least get a game out and I can get them out pretty fast. So not that you should always try and do them fast because, um, you know, obviously I could come up with a little bit more deep gameplay if I had weeks to design it. But yeah, it's just a real confidence booster to give yourself constraints like that and then to come through so i would encourage other people if you've never done a game jam before try it out um if you fail if you don't get it done in 48 hours don't worry most people don't i this last weekend was the first time i ever actually did it uh in under 48 hours so don't get discouraged if you can't do it the first time um the point is to try and you know get better. Um, the next big one that I know of, I think there's like game jams going on every week and they have specific themes. Like there might be a horror game jam or like a visual novel one. But generally the big ones that I pay attention to are, um, called the Ludum Dare or Ludum Dare. I've heard people pronounce it both ways, but that's the big game jam that happens twice a year. Uh, that I pay attention to, and honestly, I'm going to add this Game Maker's Toolkit one to my list of ones to do um, annually because I had a lot of fun doing this last one this last weekend. So um, the next Let em Dare is in October. So yeah, I'm going to be encouraging people on the Discord and anyone listening to this to participate in it because I had a super fun time and I got a lot better at making games. And uh, if you want to play my game, Bomber's Pass... I will link it in the show notes um, so you can go check it out and <laughs> blow up some uh, cars while you're trying to hit trucks. So yeah, with that, I'm going to end the episode. Um, remember, you can get in contact with me on Twitter at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. Um, at the same handle, you can check out on Instagram. I put on some concept art for my projects that I've been working on. Um, come join us on our Discord. We have a good handful of people on there now. Uh, a lot of diverse backgrounds. I just put in a technical help uh, section so that if you're having problems with like a programming or some kind of game engine or physics engines when you're trying it out, uh, trying the things we learned today, um, 
come on there and we can help you out and get you moving along. So yeah, I'll leave the uh, invitation link in the show notes. So thanks for listening. Um, I've been Zaccavelli. You should probably drive around Bombers Pass and not through it. And I'll see you guys next time.